And yes, we have this huge bear that's immigration compliance. And our job is to make that secondary to their academic experience on campus. Mm -hmm. Let us tell you what you need to do to remain compliant. Let us tell you what you need to do to access your benefits. And now let us help you be the most successful student you can be. Welcome to the Inside Study Abroad podcast. I'm your host, Brooke Roberts. In this show, we explore the world of international education and meaningful travel with some fascinating guests, a little friendly debate, and a whole lot of practical advice. Let's get going. Welcome back to the Inside Study Abroad podcast. I'm your host, Brooke Roberts, and today I am super excited to have an amazing guest on the show, the lovely Miss Jody Pritt. Hi, Jody. How you doing? I'm doing great, Brooke. How are you? I'm going to embarrass you uh, real quick, so I'm really happy. I'm going to read your bio and tell everybody how amazing you are, um, but before I get into that, um, we have known each other for a pretty long time. I think we met back in two. 2009, when we were both oh. serving on the NASA region four, four, uh, committee together. And that's how we got to know each other. And you've been bouncing around all over the place as have I, but we stay connected over the years. So I'm excited for this conversation. And for those of you who don't know, Jody, you're in luck because you're going to love this woman. So a little about her professional background. She's currently the director of international student and scholar services at Georgia state university. She began her career in international education by teaching English as a foreign language in China in 2002. And I know there's a lot of listeners who can relate to that story. Uh, since then she earned a master's degree in student affairs counseling and held various ISSS leadership positions at Missouri State University, the University of South Carolina, and Drury University, also in Missouri. Uh, she has over 20 years of experience uh, in comprehensive international student support, ranging from enrollment management, programmatic enrichment, immigration and compliance advisement, the real fun stuff, and international employee administration. She's held various leadership roles um, at, at NAFSA and other state organizations. And very exciting and very recent, she's a doctoral candidate at the University of Missouri-Columbia in Educational Leadership and Policy Analysis, and her dissertation will focus on the transformative outcomes of international study experiences. And she's ABD, guys. She's ABD. Yeah. She's so close. So close. <laughs> so welcome, Jody. Hi. Thank you. Who yeah. wrote that? That sounds sounds pretty great. I know. Years. Don't you love it when people read back your bio? You're like, wow, I've done oh, wow. some cool Fancy. stuff. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, obviously, we got a little glimpse into how you got started in international education. That you you taught English in China back in 2002. But give us some more texture and background yeah. into your international ed story. Um, how did you even get to the point where we were like? I'm going to go teach in China. Yeah, well, and those of you who do know me and those who are in the, the international head circles, we all do kind of have a story and we love telling it. Um, and one of the interesting things about that story, Brooke, is that I'm studying how when you have some kind of transformative international experience, you continue to use it and make meaning of it and apply mm -hmm. it differently as you go through life and have different experiences. And I'm no different, but uh, I grew up in a really rural area in Appalachia. I'm from West Virginia over in the Ohio River Valley area and really grew up with, you know, not that much diversity. We certainly were a family that traveled, which my parents had also traveled a little bit across the country out West specifically before they had kids. So they also had kind of travel curiosity that maybe a lot of folks that we grew up with didn't quite have. Um, but what really happened was that I was forced by the educational system to take foreign language. And I chose French in high school. And I had a French teacher who also loved teaching French. And even though we probably weren't the best students and I was never going to be uh, uh, perfect in French by any means, she definitely saw something in those of us in that class that she wanted to foster and help develop. And so um, the school system at that point in time had French one and French two. And then if you wanted, you could elect into three and four. I think it's far more complicated now, far more, you know, further developed. But at the time you had four years of it. And at the end of French two, so sophomore to junior year, the school is like, there's not enough enrollment. So you don't have to take any more foreign language. There were four of us in this class and all four of us were just heartbroken. We loved this class. 
And the, the teacher, she decided to teach us on her planning period um, so that we could still have class. And so she would continue to teach us. And then in our junior year, I don't know what happened. At some point we said to her, we wanna go to France. At this point in time, that school was 100 years old. They never had a, a, a program where they went abroad. They certainly hadn't had um, kind of this two week intensive time abroad. And the school was scheduled to be consolidated the year after I graduated. So they, this was just not a, a strategic priority by any means. But her name was Mrs. Back. I should name her. She's fantastic. And she was like, okay, let's do it. You raise half the money, we'll raise the other half. And so uh, we made it happen. I had part-time jobs. Uh, I think my parents worked some extra shifts and we figured it out. And so my senior year, actually, I turned 18 on the plane. We went to Italy and France. And it was transformative for me. Everything changed after that. All I knew was that I had to do it again. And that I wanted to be in some kind of international space and talking about things far away. Mm -hmm. um, now I call, I call that like a global kind of curiosity. At the time, I didn't know what was, you know, I just had this experience and it was just amazing that something clicked inside of me. And so I came back and started studying, went to college to study international affairs. I was really interested in diplomatic work, people-to-people um, -people diplomacy. This was where I felt my career going. And then I graduated this, I graduated December, 2001. So everything really changed in terms of what it looked like to serve in the diplomatic corps. And so then I really didn't have a plan. Mm -hmm. So I had graduated. I, I wanna ask a question about that. When you, um, decided, you know, you had this really cool high school experience and then going oh, off yeah. to university. What about, how did you even know that international diplomacy and people to people diplomacy was a thing? I know, you know, it now, and you maybe yeah. you have the language around it, but I mean, we have very similar backgrounds, like rural Kansas, rural West Virginia. Yeah. I think that that's why we've kind of bonded over the years in a lot yeah. of ways. And so, you know, I didn't know anybody who knew anything about foreign service or any of that. How did you know, even to like pursue that as a potential career track? Yeah, I didn't. So again, when we talk about educators, advisors in our lives, um, my sister had gone to college before me. And so she had the lay of the land. Mm. She knew someone who was an academic advisor and um, sent me to them. And I said, you know, I like, I've traveled, I like international things. And at that time, you pulled out a book, you looked at the majors listed in the colleges, one of them said international affairs. And I had participated in Model UN in high school, so I had a little bit of experience there, though I wouldn't say it was very developed. And so really, it was a kind of a jump and a leap. Mm -hmm. um, but right away, once I got into the core curriculum of the program, you know, it was a right fit. Mm -hmm. um, so totally by accident in some ways, but in a maybe naively intentional way as well. Yeah. Yeah. So, so you're graduated. Um, it's time to make some choices about what's next after college jobs, career, more school. Yeah. What was going on there? Well, you know, not a lot. I was working in the same job that I'd had, you know, just in local industry, nothing related to my major. And, um, there was a program, I went to Marshall university in Huntington, West Virginia, and there was a program called Appalachians teach abroad or something, Appala teach abroad Appalachians or something. Uh, and uh, Appalachians teach abroad in China. Sorry, this is one of those times where I get like- I think I know about this program. You might, yeah. This might be the program I did, but well, I don't think you had to be West Virginia. You didn't. Oh my God, I'm looking it up, everybody. Sorry, I'm not looking at her. I'm looking at And you brother. like, you would work with Marshall. The woman's name was Ching Ching Zhou. She was the director. Oh my gosh. That is so funny. Okay. Yeah. Keep telling me this story. Go yeah. Ahead. So anyways, this program existed at Marshall. I think it was, well, we don't know the, the exact name 25 years later, but anyways, um, and they said, Hey, you know, we will train you. We will get you there. We will provide you support while you are there. I signed up. I will never forget the application fee was a hundred dollars. And I was like, totally worth it. It might've been the last hundred bucks I had, but I submitted it, applied, 
was accepted and headed off in August of 2002. So this August will be 20 years. Okay. The same one. I I remember looking at this one for sure. Some of the elements are obviously different because y'all it's been a couple decades for us. (laughs) Yeah. This happened, but, um, I, I think this was definitely one that I considered because I do remember it being like a West Virginia, like something with related to West Virginia, but that yeah. just cracks me up. at the time when I, whatever program I did, whatever, it's horrible. I don't remember, yeah. but we, all of our stuff started in Beijing. This one, they're now yeah. doing most of it in Shanghai. So and I'm mine sure. was in Shanghai too. Oh, okay. So my, I didn't do this yeah. one, but yes, uh, this is, I'll have, I'll link it in the show notes if people yeah. want to go check it out um, as well. It's still running today. So. Oh, great. I'll have to connect with them because for me, that was it. Like there was the two weeks in Italy and France. And then, so I being young and courageous and maybe not uh, smart enough to be any other way, bebopped off to China, very little. Um, I, did, I didn't do any preparation. I did get a, a certificate, a TESOL certificate so I could teach and packed bags in a way that I would, be ashamed of these days. Um, And we had a two week training in Shanghai. And then I actually got placed in the interior in a town called Zhengzhou, which is in the Henan province, which at the time, you at that time, people use the Lonely Planet to traverse and travel. And when you would get to the chapter on Zhengzhou, it would say it's best, you might have to go here because the train tracks switch here from east, west to north, south but don't plan on more than an evening in the city. (laughs) So, you know, I kind of went way off the beaten path, but it was a big city. Right. And it was- Like a small town in China is like a million people. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. I think there were maybe like 4 million people there at the time. Okay. Yeah. It was so hard. Uh, You know, I had the worst culture shock you can imagine. I never had a honeymoon period. It was like, boom, I always tell people I got there in August. I was crying in my room until Thanksgiving. I would get up, I would teach, I would like eat. And then I would watch, you know, like American movies, just like looking for- The bootleg, the bootleg DVDs. Oh yeah. (laughs) And I would walk every Thursday to whatever DVD shop and look through all the DVDs that they got in over the week, you know. But then something happened around that holiday season where, you know, I started really turning that ship around. And from then really until I came home the next summer, it was a, it was just a dream. We had the best time. We, there weren't many expats in the community. So we were very involved with our Chinese students who were the same age as us. And we made a lot of friends off and on campus. Interestingly enough, SARS happened when I was there. So there was a lockdown, which, you know, for all the reasons that that had to happen was not great, but we really got to know our students really well in a way that we probably wouldn't have otherwise. And there I had another transformative experience and I didn't know what, again, I don't know what I'm going to do. This experience is over. What's next? But something I really found a, a niche in and there was working with university students who at, at that point were looking to come to the United States and study. And so I just found that this was an area where my abilities to help and support the students' endeavors to study abroad was something I wanted to do. So I came back to West Virginia and I studied uh, student affairs counseling at the master's level. And then uh, upon graduating from there, I got my first advisor job at the University of South Carolina. I think that spring semester before graduation, I probably applied to 100 jobs, maybe 200 jobs. I don't know how many jobs. And um, had maybe five phone interviews. And one of them was South Carolina. I will forever be grateful for whatever they saw in me. Had my first on campus, you know, got my little suit, you know, went down there and, and they, they, they saw something in me that I probably didn't see in myself at the time and was off to the races. So started there. That's amazing. I love that. One of the things I feel like we kind of glossed over a little bit yeah. though, but um, so Little Miss High School you was like, I did this two-week experience. It changed everything. I want to do all things international. What happened to studying abroad in college? Yeah, so this is great. This is a great lesson um, and another instructor in my life. So um, kept coming up 
and a professor who unfortunately has since passed, but he was very instrumental in my undergraduate degree, kept saying, you should go here, you should go here. At that time, there was not funding, even through financial aid for those programs. I was, for all intents and purposes, a commuter student. I was working many jobs. I lived pretty near campus, and I definitely was in a sorority and, and enjoyed some college life, but I had a lot of other responsibilities to make ends meet, and I didn't have the funding for it, but I will tell you this. His name was Dr. Matz. Dr. Matz found a free opportunity for me, and I was too scared to go. Um, and I'll never forget him just that he was disappointed. But so when China came around, I don't think he trusted that I would do it. And then I did it. Yeah. So when a lot of folks say, you know, do you ever regret anything? I, I do regret not taping those opportunities, but I think it uh, pushed me to China, which is okay. So Yeah. No, I love that. Yeah. And I, yeah. I think that, um, I think for, especially professionals listening to this is understanding that, um, that there's a lot, we all, we're always talking about the barriers to participation, but like yeah. for some students that fear, and they, that may not be the thing they admit, they might say it's too expensive. They might say, yeah. oh, I need to work, you know, or, uh, oh, I don't want to miss the basketball season or what, you know, whatever they're saying, but there might be yeah. a layer deeper. That's more about just a little bit of being scared, not feeling like they could do it, like they couldn't handle it. Um, and I think that's where advising is really valuable to like really peel back the layers of that onion to determine like, okay, what's really going on? Do they just need kind of a pep talk and talk about the resources we can give them? Or is it truly like financial or other obligations that are totally legitimate reasons not to study abroad? So, yeah. Um, well, and there's been students in my life that I've been working with in a variety of capacities who've had opportunities come their way and they may be wavering. And once we've said, okay, this bear, you know, it's not a barrier that we can't, that's not, it's not an insurmountable barrier. If your barrier is I'm nervous, you know, there's a partner here. I don't want to leave. You know, there's a lot of things I'm scared. You know, mm-hmm. we can work through those. And I've always felt that that was a, I had this kind of like card in my pocket where I feel like, you know, I was scared too, and I didn't go, and I kind of always wish I did, and yeah. in this field where everybody else kind of studied abroad, and they had these amazing experiences, and so I have had a lot of opportunity to say to, to students in my life of like, I think you should try to, let's have, how can we overcome the fear of this, because the benefits really will outshine any fear you ever had, even if it might be a little tough in the beginning. You know, as you were just saying that, and it's feeling like you have that card you can play when you're talking with students. I I feel like that is the kind of thing that I, I think as professionals, I think we all need to get better about showcasing our vulnerabilities or our our moments in this experience of travel and entering new cultures where we fluffed up, like we didn't, we didn't do it perfect. It it wasn't the, the, the YouTube day in my life, study abroad kind of perfection that maybe students think is going to happen. I, I don't think I've ever shared on the podcast, for instance. And I think it's also because I, I probably still carry it around as like maybe a point of shame, but I studied abroad the second semester of my freshman year. And I was, uh, it was a six month program in Switzerland. So not exactly like hardcore hard, you know, like going to, yeah, but it was far away. It was super expensive. It was just like a totally different world. It was enough for a Kansas kid to be like, Whoa, but I was so like you were describing when you were in China, I was so homesick and just not feeling like I don't, I felt like I didn't belong there. Like, uh, you know, all my peers were like wearing Gucci and I didn't even know what Gucci was. Like, it was just like, so I felt so poor and felt so like, I don't belong here. And I was so um, homesick that I, I went home, I went home for spring break. So I had saved myself like a thousand dollars to like travel locally, like in Europe for spring break. And instead I was so homesick. I sent myself home. Uh, I went back after spring break, like just like a normal semester, but I, that's one of those times in my life where I'm like, Oh, wow. Like what, what an opportunity lost for me. Um, but it's the kind of thing that, I I probably should share more, especially when I was working more directly with students about like, I get it. I was terrified too. I sent myself all the way back home to Kansas. I was so scared and homesick. So I, I understand that feeling. And I think you're right. Like being able to have that card and be like, I get you. Yeah. So you went back, you know, so you're, you're, you look back at that and you say like, this is this moment that I'm maybe not proud of, but 
a lot of people would have just been like, well, now I'm home. There's no right. point in finishing this out. So he went back. So yeah. that's your card of like, yeah, I went home, but I went back. Yeah. Um, and, and I will say the yeah. next half of the semester, like the next three months was, it was a lot better. I think because once I, I put myself back in like the home culture, right. Uh, I had that little dose of like, Oh, I have changed. I have grown. I am more capable than I realized. Like I, I, I ha- couldn't see that growth because I was in it. And so when yeah. I went back, I was like, Oh, I can really, you know, dive into this experience. If you're listening to the podcast, I'm making all the hand movements. I'm yeah. <laughs> so, um, so let's, let's switch gears a little bit. Um, and obviously, you know, to fast forward, you've got that first job and you've built yeah. this illustrious career in international <laughs> ed and specifically in international students and scholar services. And so you are like in my world, you're my guru on all things <laughs> ISSS. And, um, so I want you to sort of maybe share some of your expertise around, especially what's going on right now. We're recording this late September, 2021. Um, what are some of the big challenges facing ISSS advisors and offices right now? Yeah. Well, you know, it's been, it's been tough for everyone. So I don't, want to seem like the weight of the toughness for those of us who work with international students is any, you know, any worse than than our colleagues. But it's been, you know, in 20 years, it's been the hardest couple of years Mm -hmm. I've ever worked. And a big piece of that is it's the first time ever that those of us who are international student practitioners did not know the answers. So when you're in ISSS, a big part of the work is compliance work. And so that's very few of us do compliance work because we're like, oh, we really wanted to read immigration regulations all day and create policy. Yeah. Like that's not why we're there. It just comes with the territory. But one of the nice things about it is that you know the territory. Like here's your immigration regulations. You, you know, there's uh, some ambiguity that we have to figure out and you have to decode and, and see what works best for your student and your institution. But this was the first time ever that that roadmap was out the window. Mm-hmm. Brooke, and to the listeners, the amount of times that we would say, this thing will never happen, and then it happened during COVID, is crazy, right? Mm-hmm. So we kind of went into autopilot. I would say eh, two or three months after March 2020, everyone was in autopilot, trying to just, you're just trying to make things right. It was really difficult to have students calling and saying, And for me, it was so hard to say, I don't know what advice to give you. I I want you to talk to the loved ones in your life, those who you're closest to, and make the decision that you believe is best for you in this moment. And if that's going home, if that's staying here, Mm -hmm. then you need to make that decision. And then I will tell you how this will or won't work with your immigration status. And that was a a really vulnerable place to be for a lot of us. Mm -hmm. And now we're here in this almost like illusion of the other side, right? You know, you know, we keep thinking, oh, it's better, but what we're now grappling with is what does this look like for us down the road? And what is now, not just our future, but what is our current and constant for international student services and international scholar services? And I don't have those answers, but I, I have a couple of ideas. One, a lot of students, came back and a lot of new students came. And where we thought we were gonna have no students, at Georgia State, we had 19% increase from fall 2019. Schools who maybe didn't have a huge increase, they stayed about the same. They didn't have the decrease that they expected. So one thing we know is that international students still wanna come here to study. Mm -hmm. And the thing that I also know is I still want them to, and I still wanna welcome them here in whatever way we can. And yes, we have this huge bear that's immigration compliance. And our job is to make that secondary to their academic experience on campus. Mm -hmm. Let us tell you what you need to do to remain compliant. Let us tell you what you need to do to access your benefits. And now let us help you be the most successful student you can be so that you can have what I'm studying and writing about for a doctorate degree this transformational experience that you will carry with you for the rest of your life. Mm-hmm. And so that is a constant. Students still want to come here and we still want to help them. But in what ways do we do that? And what does that look like? And also understanding 
I'm not a new professional anymore. And the culture and philosophy of international student advising changes. And I don't want to become stale. I want to take things where I was innovative and kind of my cohort of folks that we did really good things and we built foundations and we want to let new professionals come in and, and keep building on it and prove it. And I think this is the moment when that's going to happen for them. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of opportunity out there and there's a, there is room for everyone's voices at the table. Even those of us who've been doing this for a long time are saying to younger professionals, newer professionals, not even necessarily younger professionals, new professionals of the field, what do you think we need to do? You know, I can give you the, the infrastructure. So just like we tell students, let's get this kind of compliance piece out of the way. We're saying to new professionals, here's what you need to know to do your job uh, functionally. Tell me how you want to do it philosophically. Mm. And so that's kind of my thoughts about it right now is that the practitioners right now that are coming in and entering the field are really going to help us shape the next 10, 15, 20 years of international students mm -hmm. purposes. Yeah. I love that con that idea of making the uh immigration compliance, like secondary to their experience. Um, I, I honestly, when I hear that, I, I'm like, oh, I feel like education abroad almost needs to take a cue from that kind of thinking. Cause I think sometimes in education abroad, it's very like application forward. It's like, get them in the door, get them, get their courses, you know, verified and transferred before that, you know, all the things like get all the, the compliance stuff, basically, yeah. um, the outbound sign. And, and then there's like that last minute kind of, Oh wait, have a great intercultural experience. Bye. You know, like, yeah, um, yeah. I mean, and I'm obviously simplifying dramatically. So please don't take offense to me saying that, but I think sometimes because, you know, we're just like, yeah, we have to check all the boxes that right. the making sure we're preparing them to really engage with the experience and, um, you know, and I think we all know too, it's like that the mantra is like, yeah, but students don't listen to you. You could tell them that like halfway through, they're going to be like down in the dumps, like I was and want to come home and they shouldn't or whatever. Like we have all those um, kind of boilerplate perspectives, but I think I really love that idea of like, let's get this other stuff. That's just not sexy, but necessary out of the way. And then let's focus on like, what kind of you know, coursework and faculty you yeah. can connect with and internships and, you know, student clubs and organizations you could get involved with yeah. um, that really do craft the whole college experience. Um, I love that. Um, one of the things I wanted to ask, and I will say right now, a little, little teaser is that Jody is actually teaching our international student advising lab. So if you're listening to this and you are curious about a career track that Jody has taken where you're working with inbound students coming to the United States or inbound to any country really. Um, but hers will obviously focus on more of that U S side, but, uh, she's going to be teaching that whole lab. So she's going to be spilling all the beans on everything. I told her, I was like, if you're teaching this, I want you to teach like the one Oh one level ISSS kind of course that you would want every new professional in your office to take so that they're sort of hit the ground running aware of sort of the larger landscape of ISSS and, and how that world works. Um, and so this is very new to me. I'm going to be learning all the things from Jody, And so she's going to be teaching that in a couple of weeks. I'll give all the details about that and how you can get involved later in the episode, but uh, kind of related to some of the the more specifics around this as a little teaser, when you talked about sort of what's going on right now and the challenges facing, I'm curious, have the rules changed or shifted as a result of the, the COVID experiment or experience, if you will, um, around requirements on in-person versus virtual or the blending of those things? I know that that used to, or that previously was like the sticking point that students have to be in person in order to be compliant. Right, so the, the basic philosophy of the F1 international student visa or the J1 international student visa is that you have a reason to be here physically. And that is to be on campus in classes and involved and learning. And so this, this always came with limitations on hybrid type courses, online only classes, kind of what we put all together in a distance education bubble, which is now an antiquated term. Yeah, it's like just <laughs> education. It's just <laughs> education. So this is one of those times where the kind of the things we said would never happen, happened. So in March, 2020, we started getting guidance from 
are um, intergovernment agencies, specifically the Student and Exchange Visitor Program, that was saying, well, schools are, are leaving campus. Students do not have a classroom to go to. So they, would they made temporary accommodations for institutions who met certain criteria. They weren't hosting classes in person, et cetera, mm -hmm. that these students would be allowed to be in all online web-based distance-based distance classes without it interrupting or, or having any negative impact on their immigration status. And so we had to pivot, you know, the, the sentences that I could roll off my tongue in my sleep about compliance are now different, right? So it's like, oh, I have to think about that. So that continues to change and ebb and flow. We don't have a permanent um, change on that. It's still, we're still in the pandemic. Mm -hmm. And so a lot of the guidance we're still getting is dependent on your university's operations, this is what students can and can't do. Mm -hmm. um, and even though most universities returned to as much as a normal operating procedure this fall as possible, some did not. Mm -hmm. And so there could be allowances at some institutions that perhaps some don't have. Um, but also a big change, a game changer for operations and an ISSS office. And for the education abroad side, this may not even register as like a thing people would have thought about, but we were able to do electronic documents for F1 students for the first time ever. And you think, okay, well that just changes one thing, right? No, it changes everything. You think about the fact that now we have pamphlets on that we would work on for, we would labor over the orientation pamphlets or the how to get your visa pamphlets that you would put in the envelope with that physical document that doesn't exist anymore, right? Yeah. So then you're like forced to rethink this whole piece of, of a business process that you had done this way for decades, mm -hmm. right? And so that's a big one that we're really hopeful sticks around, but it was something we never thought we'd see where we were able to email documents to students so that they could procure a visa to, to get here. And mm -hmm. so a lot of rules have changed, but at this moment, those are temporary changes. We're really hopeful, especially with our professional organizations and those who advocate on our behalf with lawmakers and policymakers that some of them will, will become regulatory framework, um, but we're not there yet. So everything right now is kind of this adjustable goalpost, right? Like. Mm -hmm. For now, we're going to do the best we can do to get students here, but we're not going to make any permanent changes until it's actually advantageous for the program and the students. Okay. Okay, cool. Well, thank you for that little insight. More to come. Um, more to the, come. That was great. Yeah. Um, so, okay. So let's have a little section for those listening who are like, Ooh, I really want to work with international students. And actually in the global pro Institute, our sort of career development program for international education, we have a lot of people who come through or like, I really want to work with international students, which I think is amazing. Um, if they're curious about that type of work in our field, what do you think are maybe the two or three top skill sets you think they need to acquire or work on to make them a you know an attractive candidate if they were applying in your office for instance well certainly there are things that we look for right away have they themselves been in a situation where they're in a uh, like an international student with some kind of disorienting situation where they lived abroad or they lived somewhere that they did have to kind of traverse a landscape that was completely different from what they were used to. Um, usually a study abroad or a work abroad. Um, have they had experience working with people from other countries or people whose language may not, first language may not be English? Um, and do they have a keen like a keen desire to work with international students. Mm -hmm. Certainly there are people who I've hired and I've worked with who didn't necessarily want to work with international students. Perhaps they were more into systems information management or business processing management and they were great and getting to work with international students was a lovely benefit. But for the most part, I want applicants who say, I want to work with international students. And here's why, you know, I, I lived abroad. I had an international roommate in college, whatever it may be. People have all kinds of experiences that bring them to the application in our office. But being able to articulate why they want to work with international students specifically is kind of, that's my baseline. 
you want to work with international students because that's all that matters to us. At the end of the day, that is all that matters to us. Are these students taken care of and are we setting them up for success? Um, I think the others is that there, I, I really like when staff come with ideas. Uh, they, they, they have an understanding of what it is that they're good at and where their strengths lie and where they can apply them in the position that they're seeking and how that's good for, again, the international student, but also the department and office and the university at large. If you're talking about a university, you don't have to work at a university always to work with international students, but in most cases it, it is. And I think third, just really trying to understand the benefit of having students cross boundaries to study and then what that means on a macro level. So I always ask this really hard question in interviews where I ask people, talk about a profound experience in your life and how it still impacts you today. And you'll watch people like freeze up because that's a lot, right? Yeah, I love that question though. Wow, <laughs> yeah. everybody write that down. Let's practice yeah. our answers. So yeah. if you can articulate that on your own and it doesn't have to be about international travel, you can articulate the experience of international education, right? Mm -hmm. um, we, call it, we can even call it transnational education of like crossing international borders to learn and to acquire knowledge and then going back to your home country or another country or staying in the host country. The ripple effect of that, the magnitude is tremendous. And mm -hmm. so I understand that if you're coming in as an initial advisor, maybe you aren't able to say it that, but you're able to say, this is not an insular to this office or this campus. This experience a student is gonna have does not stop when they get back on the plane and go home. Mm -hmm. It will continue to be in their lives forever. I still make, I still redefine, redefine and think about my experience in China all the time. Mm -hmm. it's going to be 20 years and what it meant to me when I first came back is completely different than what it means to me now yeah and it impacts people in my life even my family um you know I have you know my scholarly interest is in the country of Oman so my parents have had to hear about it all the time and now you know they have an interest in it you know and uh -huh. you know and I bought my mother Omani perfume for her birthday three weeks ago, you know, and 20 years ago, we probably didn't even know where Oman was. And so like, it has a ripple effect. Mm -hmm. and, mm -hmm. and I think for people who are going into this field, really understanding that maybe you're not sitting and talking about this with a student every day. Yeah. Uh, I'm writing a dissertation about that. So I don't expect people to have those conversations in five minutes, but yeah. being able to articulate this, something's bigger happening here. Right. This is and it's well, not. Since you brought that up, I have to, I feel like okay. uh, we could almost make this a drinking game on this podcast okay. <laughs> every time Brooke brings up the study abroad journal, but that's like why, you know, Natalie and I created this journal and it being a physical sort of archive of an experience is because it's not asking a student to look at a blank page and be like, dear diary and like have all these right. profound insights about their day-to-day -day experience on the ground. It's mostly to document, like, what did you observe? What will you remember about today? So that later, you know, a, you know, three months after they return or 30 years after they've had that experience, they could flip back through here and go to, you know, September 29th, 2001. Oh yeah. I met this really lovely lady with red hair from West Virginia, never heard of West Virginia, you know, and like, yeah. and they can start being like, yeah. And I remember thinking like, uh, you know, whatever assumptions I made about Americans and she, you know, disrupted those things. I'm making this up as I go, yeah. obviously, but the idea is that then you have like this, um, this tangible and archive of the experience so that you can, as you're making meaning of this experience over the years and decades following that you can answer that really great question of what was a meaningful experience and how's it still impacting you today. And, um, I think that, uh, kind of related to, to the journal, um, you know, I always tell people like my saddest thing about study abroad, especially my last study abroad, I was, I was required to submit a weekly journaling. It was just like, tell us what your experience was like four pages about your last week. And we sent them all to the study abroad office each week. We emailed it in, but they were, I like, they're on a, they were on a floppy disc somewhere. Um, I never got them back from the office. I'm sure they don't have them. I don't have access to that email address anymore. You know, so I have this like amazing archive 
archive of whatever, you know, 21 year old Brooke thought about the world at the time, which might be scary yeah. and it's gone. It's just gone forever. So I really love that question. And I think like giving st students tools to help document it so that they can start reflecting on it, making meaning of it later is, is so incredibly important, even though maybe to students, it does sound super lame. That's why we tried to make the journal like easy, like quick, you know, and cool, <laughs> not cool. So, <laughs> Well, I'm really glad you brought it up because the whole reason that my dissertation work is on this kind of transformative learning, reflective application, identity negotiation, is because now it's time for me to give back, right? So I've been working in the field and I feel like it's been very transactional in a lot of ways, but now I'm gonna do this research. The research is I'm gonna to go to Oman. I'm gonna to talk to people who studied abroad last year, 20 years ago, however many years ago, and, and ask them to have real inquiry into that experience as they perceive it today. And with that, what I hope to be able to do is go back, now coming back to international advisors and say, okay, here's how you can foster like a student being able to understand that they are going to have to critically reflect. Mm -hmm. And so, for example, for me, I can't write in a journal. It's not something that's in my wheelhouse. I have literally a quart-sized baggie from China full of artifacts, right? You know, like a napkin or, you know, what, whatever. And I have a little notebook in there that I would draw pictures on on a train where there was a language barrier. And that's how I look at that and think about, you know, those are my, my artifacts from that experience. Yeah. And so, but teaching people like you can create ways to preserve this experience, but continue to use it and learn it. Mm -hmm. Again, they might think it's hokey, but how many times Brooke has a person who I have an experience with a student or you know, a student who studied abroad, they don't really tell you as soon as the experience is over, right? You hear from them months later, years later. It was like, awesome. Yeah, like, yeah that's what they that's say right. right when they get back, yeah. I had the best time ever. And then four years later, they're like, here's this in-depth conversation or email because you're constantly thinking, you know, you're mm -hmm. again, you're reapplying that experience. And so with international students, yes, we have a compliance piece. It's massive, we have to do it every day, but part of that is that you can start working with those students of like, this is a big deal. Yeah. Like what you're doing right now is a big deal and it will be a big deal for you for the rest of your life. I will say, I often tell people who are curious about a career in international education, um, you know, and they talk about, you know, the, their experience and how meaningful it was. And that's why they want to go into the field. And sometimes I'm often like telling them, I'm like, you know, I worked in education abroad my whole time. So that's, that's my wheelhouse, but I know yeah. enough, you know, to be dangerous, so to speak about the others to be like, you know, if you are really passionate about the experience that students are having, you might want to consider international students and scholars because they may not even know that's the career track because they know study yeah. abroad because they studied abroad. Right. And I'm like, because you're going to get to be quote unquote on the ground during a study abroad experience with them um, yeah. and actually get to foster uh, some of the th these things we've been talking about, whereas obviously in study abroad, we want to be, you know, helpful and supportive and there for students and help give them some tools to, to start doing that. But really it's the people and the administrators on the ground and the faculty on the ground, that are really going to help them really make meaning and, and hopefully start processing some of this stuff. So I always like, I feel like international students and scholars, like, yes, you have to do compliance, which I feel like is yeah. probably the worst part, but you get to be with the students as they're going through it. I right. think, I think this is a great segue actually, because I want uh, everyone to hear about you and Oman, <laughs> um, the country, if I'm saying, yeah. hopefully I'm pronouncing that right. So people that say, Oman, oh, uh, but <laughs> Oman, um, yeah. And because I listened to a podcast, which I will also link down below, uh, where Jody was being interviewed on it, and she told some really wonderful stories that helped me learn so much about Amon. Just even listening to that podcast, um, and so yeah, tell us a little bit about why uh, you mentioned that you're going to be doing your research in Oman. Um, why? Why? How did Oman come into your world? Yeah. Well, again, I think it, it, it's all tied together. You know, it's the calls coming from in the house, right? Like yeah. it's you know you can never get too far from it, but. Actually, that first year that I was an international student advisor at the University of South Carolina, there was, uh, you know, an Omani student who was just very engaged with our office and really became quite close to a lot of the staff and was an amazing 
ambassador for Oman. And he uh, stayed in touch with us for years, cut to, I, I probably about 10 years later, uh, a, a group of us went on vacation over New Year's. And I love that. Yeah, we, we, you know, I told the story on that podcast. We were having our regular Saturday Mexican food talk and like, where should we go over New Year's? And we uh, did a little toast. We're going to Oman and, you know, it was almost not a reality, uh, but we went and we had, I had, I can't speak for others on the group though. They, they too, I think had an amazing experience and have articulated that. It was one of those times where I got off the plane and I was like, something is special here. Like something, I don't know what's happening. I can't, you know, I can't uh, articulate it. I don't know why, but I'm really happy to be here. And we were only there at five days. At the end of five days, I didn't want to come home. I came home. I had a new uh, boss, a new vice provost at the time who was really encouraging us to think bigger and, and which I will always appreciate. And I knew that we had a strong alumni base there. And so I proposed a, a collaborative project between the university and Oman at that time that, that my supervisor let me launch. And that piece of it was specific to my work at the University of South Carolina, but it kept taking me back. And so a, a kind of a side benefit was that I was constantly engaging in society in Oman and with Omanis. And I just really became very curious about a country that really had had rapid development in the last 40 years. A big piece of that was that they had uh, his, his late majesty, Sultan Qaboos, who was saying, education is a piece of this. Like we are not going to go forward unless we are providing opportunities of education for everyone, boys and girls. There's a famous quote, even if it's under the date trees, people will be learning. And right away, very early in his reign, he created opportunity for students to study outside of the country for higher education. And so um, I, you know, just kind of blended all these things, my, my kind of love for travel and things that are different uh, with international student, the life cycle of an international student making meaning like I had done for China. And me too, again, I was in my mid thirties going to Oman, having this transformative experience. You know, when we were at that Mexican restaurant discussing our vacation, no one could have ever imagined that, okay, Jody's gonna write a dissertation on this. Like I yeah. would have, you know, I was gonna be dragged kicking and screaming into a doctorate study, but <laughs> all of a sudden now I had this thing, like I have to study it all the time. So it's very yeah. interesting. Um, you have a lot of Omanis who are back there like building Oman. It's, it's, uh, the, it's just an incredible place. I recommend anybody travel there that can when it's safe for all of us to be traveling again. And yeah. um, I, uh, and, and like I said on the podcast and I'll tell anybody when say, people say, well, really what makes it great well, Oman is beautiful. You know, we always joked, it's, you're gonna walk around a corner thinking you're gonna see a unicorn, it's so beautiful. But what makes Oman the place it is are the people. They're just amazingly warm, welcoming, outstanding people who have just this also real, uh, you know, kind of keen wish to, to travel and understand others. And so I think that's, it's a really special place. Mm -hmm. so. How, um, you know, how does Oman, um, I guess, differ, I guess, from other Middle Eastern countries or how, or maybe the better question would be, how does it differ from maybe the stereotypes people might have of it? Um, well, one of the, one very impactful program for me at my previous uh, job at South Carolina was that I got to take a group. I got to be a program director for a study abroad program. So I dipped my toes on the other side. And we, the point of that, there was, these were journalism students. And what I wanted them to do was really examine the difference between our headlines and their experience, right? And this is the Arabian Peninsula. This is what we talk about all the time. A lot of people had not heard of Oman because it's not in the headlines. It's mm -hmm. often on one of your like top 10 most peaceful countries in the world list, you know, all these kind of metrics. But I think Oman, I am not kind of a, a political Omani scholar by any means. And there are lots of people who speak to this, but 
on a very kind of elementary understanding, their geographic location has required them to have guests and people coming through forever mm-hmm. since the beginning of the t- of time. And so I think this, this um, the word I'm looking for is this exposure to others, which again, going back to, to my field, has created almost a requisite need for kind of being a welcome, welcoming, warm, open, open place. And so very safe place. I, I often feel, I, you know, I feel safer there than I do at home, which is not necessarily an equal barometer, but it's a, it's a wonderful place. I think people are very open to guests. They want people to be there. They want people to be visiting and working there. And that's, that's really what makes them very special. And again, as we talk about their leaders, and I'm very interested in studying leadership, Kabus was very intentional about equal rights for everyone, including women, and access to information and education. So Mm -hmm. I think that's a very rudimentary understanding of it, but I think it's definitely something that plays a big part in the fact that someone from West Virginia can be one day doing research and going there fairly often. Yeah. Well, and I think it's, it's great to just to hear a perspective that, and I'm not specifically talking about Oman necessarily, but like, you know, I think there's a lot of people who are willing to say maybe harsh things about that part of the world all the time. And I think it's harder sometimes to find people who are like, well, but also I've had this experience that may be contradictory to the other things that you've heard. And my experience is equally as valid and accurate. So I think that's, that's worth, worth sharing for sure. Um, I'm well, first number one is I want to go to Amman, (laughs) take me with you next time you go. I will let's, let me be a reporter for you inside study abroad. Let me see inside Oman and the educational experience there. Uh, I would love to the uh, Jody's tour of Muscat's really highly rated. I mean, I'm in like, where do I sign (laughs) up? Send me the link. Um, And then the second thing I wanted to talk about is a little bit more like, I don't know, just out of my curiosity, I've, I'm like you, well, the former you, I'm like, I will be never doing a PhD <laughs> famous last words, like 10 years from now, yes, but like, yeah. oh, I just finished my PhD. Yeah. Um, but I, uh, so I'm, am curious about is some, maybe there is somebody listening. Who's like thinking about doing a PhD and they would like to be able to do research because they're curious about a specific part of the world. How does one fund that type of thing? Is it all self-funded? Do you have to get grants? Is it part of like your educational program through, um, university of Missouri? How does one go yeah. to Oman and do research? Well, you know, the, I, I'm asking that question myself right now. Okay. So I uh, just became ABD, and actually last weekend I applied for a travel grant through the Sultan Qaboos Cultural Center Fellowship Program to try to fund that research. Um, financial aid will allow you to also fund your research, um, you know, through different loaner, lenders. Mm-hmm. And then the Still University loans, yeah. of yeah. But the University of Missouri typically does have grants to which you can apply for your dissertation or your thesis research. COVID, of course, has impacted that in terms of allowances for travel internationally. So, yeah, this is the age old question of like, how am I going to fund this? And for me, uh, I am seeking avenues to do that as best as possible within, you know, my resources and, and what I have available to me. Mm-hmm. Um, but another positive benefit of knowing that we can do this is that I made an entire contingency plan in my dissertation that if I have to do it via Zoom, I'll do it via Zoom. Right. Okay. Um, but where there's a will, there's a way. Just yeah. like when I asked Mrs. Back to go to France, we figured it out. I think we sold oranges, like boxes of oranges came from Florida and we sold them in West Virginia. Like That's so great. I sold t-shirts <laughs> with like ugly animals on them. I remember oh, to go okay. to in high school. Yeah, I was, I'm with you. I like did some weird things. My poor family. I'm like, why are they buying this stuff for me? Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. I think there are resources out there for students. It is not easy. Everyone knows like the struggling doctorate student, even undergrad and grad. But when the whole point of a a doctorate I have learned is if you're not willing to talk about it to everybody who comes in to your sphere, if it's not, you're not every, you know, social media post and you're just looking for articles and reading books, then probably doctorate study is not what you want to do because that's what it takes to do this. So again, like 
when you want to do it, you'll figure it out. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> well, I, I have every, um, faith, all the faith that you're going to make that happen. Um, cause I want you to go back to Oman cause I just know how much you love it. And I, again, I'm going to link to that, that interview that you did, um, that. which was so good. I just loved that. So I'd love to support that podcast as well. Um, and we can help support Jody just like a little before we get to the end of this conversation. Um, so going back to the global pro labs, so Jody, like I mentioned, is going to be our professor for that international student advising lab. And again, it's just sort of your introduction, the baseline of what you would need to do, know as an entry level person in an international students and scholars office at a, a U.S. university or college. And we're going to be actually teaching that live October 19th. That's Tuesday, October 19th. It's going to be 1 p.m. Central. It'll last about three hours, including a Q&A period. And we are trying something a little different this time. So if you have been curious about any of our Global Pro Labs in the past, but maybe you didn't have the funding, it just didn't make sense for you, what we're going to do is we're going to do it live for free. So if you show up live to the recording of us performing, us, Jody performing, and I will be there to moderate, um, of Jody presenting this workshop. If you show up live, it'll be completely free. If you'd like to access the recordings and all the supplemental uh, documentation, then you will have to enroll in, in the full program. But otherwise, you can come for free and learn everything you've ever wanted to know about ISSS from Jody, the guru um, on all things ISSS. And so it'll be a lot of fun. So I'll have links to everything down in the show notes. Again, that's going to be happening October 19th at 1 p.m. Central. And so we would really love to have you all join us. Um, so as we sort of round out this um, interview, I have like some more lightning round kind of questions that I did not send you ahead of time. Uh, so, and so they're just sort of like quick answers. Um, it's just more on the fun side of international ed. Um, so the first question, and I, some of these I'm going to think of on the top of my head. So the first question would be um, all things, everything you know about the world um, and you get to go back in time but with the knowledge that you have today and you get to decide to study abroad in college, you can't go to Oman. We already know you love Oman. Um, where would you study abroad if you had an opportunity? Well, where that professor wanted me to go was to Quebec. And I, so I would go back and I would say yes. Oh, I love that. Oh, yeah. I love the idea of people studying abroad in Canada, actually. That's yeah. like a whole other topic. Cause I feel like sometimes people are like, I've only been to Canada. They'll say that if they, you know, about their travel or Mexico or Mexico, they're like, I've only been yeah. to Mexico. And, and I was like, well, obviously it depends on how you, where you went in those, like, and how yeah. you engage locally, but like, there are very different cultures <laughs> and, and totally yeah. worth the exploration and, and, and study if you will. So I love that answer. Um, so favorite food you've had around the world oh gosh well I'm a big soup person so there's there's two and they're for two very different reasons so in Zhengzhou there's a soup called Hui Mian which is a hand cut flour like hand pulled and hand cut noodle soup and it's just this like thick broth with you know your meat of choice and cilantro and spice everybody would just kind of sit around the table and slurp it up and it would be cold outside it was just amazing right so that's my ratatouille whenever yeah. I can find that somewhere I live in Atlanta now you can find it it's great the other one is from Bogota which is ahiaco which is like oh. a potato base soup with some capers and corn so those are my two biggies. Yeah, I love that. I love the idea of like finding kind of a, a, a food formation and then yeah. exploring the world through that. Like, I love the idea of like being like, okay, I'm going to try the soups of the world, you know, and like yeah. being like, okay, I can, and that is a real thing all over the world. That's super smart. Um, I remember my, uh, Instagram, I should start a you soups. should yeah. world soups. Oh my there gosh. Go claim it before somebody else does. Um, I love that. And then lastly, I will say, um, if you were doing any career that isn't in international education, what do you think you'd be doing? Oh gosh. I just came up with that. I'm sorry. <laughs> yeah. Um, what would I be doing? I don't know. Probably event planning. I really like to plan events, which you get to do a lot of in this work. Right. right? Yeah. Orientation or 
I mean, we put together an alumni reception on the top of a shopping mall in downtown Muscat, like overlooking like the, the Gulf of Oman. And I was like, what is this like? <laughs> like, this is amazing. So I think event planning for sure, because you get to kind of be meticulous and organize, and then you get to have the event and then you get that high, like after right. you pull it off. So. Well, and I think too, it's like event planning is also like thinking about like kind of you know, when you're playing, like designing a study abroad program, you're like planning an event. It just might be pretty long event, right. uh, but it's yeah. also like an event. It's like, how do you want people to feel when they walk up to the registration desk? What does the signage look like? Like how are, you know, all these little deep, like you mentioned, the details are really going to set the stage. It's, you know, yeah. user experience or user um, design, uh, as we call it in like the tech side, but it's also mm -hmm. true in like physical events. Um, so I think that's really cool. Awesome. Yeah. All right, everybody make sure that you go and say hi to Jody over on LinkedIn. I will link to her profile in the show notes as well. And then make sure that you join us for the live recording of the International Student Advising Global Pro Lab. Again, that's October 19th at 1 p.m. Jody's going to be dropping all the international student knowledge, and I can't wait for that. And Jody, thank you so much for coming on the show. This is a lot of fun. Yeah, thank you for having me. I really enjoyed it. All right. I'll see you soon, everybody.